Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the second episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Our guest today is Drew Bamet. Drew is Chief Information Security Officer at Boston Scientific. This is an increasingly important role as medical devices become more and more connected with the outside world. We'll talk with Drew about how Boston Scientific takes the measures necessary to ensure their devices are protected against outside intrusion. So great conversation with Drew, important work being done, and very happy to have him on the podcast. Before we begin this episode, though, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Digi International. I am speaking with Bob Blumenscheid. Bob is Senior Product Marketing Manager at Digi International. Bob, tell us about Digi International. Digi International was founded in 1985 as a manufacturer of high-quality networking hardware. Our headquarters is in Hopkins, Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis, with additional offices worldwide. Since 2005, Digi has produced hardware components with supporting software for OEMs, which provide both edge processing and secure wireless connectivity and are integrated into our customers' products. Our customers typically create industrial or medical devices, and we help them get to market faster with high-quality, secure, connected devices. Right. We'll hear the rest of my conversation with Bob Blumenscheid a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about Digi International right now, go to its website, digi.com. That's D-I-G-I dot com. Well, Drew Bamet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, Tom. Drew, I want to get into your background a bit and how you found your way into the medical device industry. But I have to think cybersecurity and supply chain folks are probably like celebrities now at cocktail parties and, and barbecues. These are areas that no one ever gave a thought to before, but now it's just a central part of, uh, of our life these days. Do you get a lot of attention for being a cybersecurity uh, expert? You know, that's interesting you mentioned that, Tom. Not really. People normally ask me, the first thing they say is, wow, you must be a stressful job, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and so I grew a a small beard. I know most of the listeners probably can't see my face, but I have a beard now just to show the white hair on it. But I'm kidding. It's it's a it's 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 a fun job, just you know, especially because of the team that you work with and the experts that you know come to bear every day. So it's just a, it's just an ama- amazing journey, but it's also full of uh, challenges, of course, as you know, every day is a new day in cybersecurity. Absolutely. No, and I'm sure it is stressful, and I have plenty of white on my beard as well. So uh, it's where we are in, in life. So. How did you find your way into the healthcare sector? Was it an intentional path or or did it just so happen to be where the demand was for your services? Right. No, it wasn't intentional at all. It was actually almost accidental, but it became a passion of mine. So my journey started back in, uh, you know, when I came to the United States, I, I grew up in Kenya. So, you know, fine temperature only around 72, 76 degree weather. 
and came to the U.S. back in 99, and it was just the biggest snowstorm in Minneapolis where I landed. <laughs> and I remember asking myself, what in the world did I get myself into? What did my parents get me into? But my journey started in you know, Marshall, Minnesota, which is a small southwest Minnesota town where I went to uh, college there, did my undergrad in computer science. Just like any you know, college student at the time, that thing was just coming out and being a software developer or being a software engineer. And that's what I did, right? So when I left the workforce, graduated, it was a time when we had the big you know, housing market boom and everybody was building up offices to do you know, loan officers, issuing mortgages and stuff like that. And they were hiring people to come and set up you know, their IT equipment and running cable, you know, network cables and setting up servers. And I got into that industry and you know, freelance for a while and then got into a software development company in Egan, Minnesota, another small town. But it was fun, right? A college student really getting into software development. I enjoyed the job. But then after that, I got hired into the hospital system. At the time, they hired me to be part of a security team to help to automate some of the access management, right? What we now call identity and access management. So at the time, it was building, writing small scripts to help to automate that. And that's how I got into cybersecurity, right? You know, as a software developer working within a hospital system in the security team. And that's, that's how my journey started, Tom. Interesting. So how did you find your way from those jobs into the medtech industry? It gets interesting, right? So, <laughs> so I stick around and I, I finish my projects and they're like, all right, what, what the heck are we going to do with Drew? So he's in this cybersecurity group. Well, hey, let's give you more engineering roles, work with the architects there. And so I got embedded with the security team. And the more I worked with them, the more I started loving the job, right? We started at the time we were bringing in a new security operations center, which was sort of outsourced, what we call now the managed security service providers. And so we worked on that and, and I was leading that project to bring in that third party to help with you know, automating security and, and doing monitoring. And then from then on, uh, that's that hospital, local hospital here in the Twin Cities merged with another you know, bigger hospital. And they promoted me to give me more responsibilities within the security realm. So I worked with engineers again, worked with architects, did a lot more security operation type stuff. And then they decided that they wanted to give me a special project. And that project was to focus on what we call the Wild Wild West, which was the medical device security for the hospital system. Oh, boy. And that's how I got into medical devices, right? Starting to figure out how do we secure all these medical devices that we cannot do vulnerability scanning because we may tip it, you know, tip it over when there's a patient on the other end. And how do we manage all these vulnerabilities that we see on our network, right? So that's when I kind of got my interest got picked and I focused more on medical devices. And that led me to working for, you know, Mayo Clinic down in Rochester, where I used to commute. And that focus was working within a team of cybersecurity team members doing clinical information security. What that meant was looking at everything from how we secure, you know, the wristbands that secure babies when they are born mm -hmm. to all these big medical devices, you know, used for treating patients at Mayo Clinic to also connected devices on the building, you know, what we call the building automation systems that connect to the network or commonly known as IoT devices, right? So I focused my work in that team and that drove me into really getting more close to medical device industry. You know, I started attending conferences, getting to know the manufacturers. And so that, that's what brought me to Boston Scientific. When the opportunity came up, for me, it was a no-brainer because I was like, you know, I've been curious what's happening 
in the you know upstream, right? So I want to go there and see if I can influence and make a change so that we can help hospitals with these you know massive ecosystem of medical devices that hospital IT cannot really do a lot to manage because of the regulated nature of it. And that's how my journey came to you know Boston Scientific at the time. Interesting. So give me a glimpse into how you view your challenge. I mean, I'm a creative guy. I have an opportunity. I, my process is I know I'm talking to an interesting person today. I don't want to turn that into a, a podcast. There's a, there's a path forward and there's, and there's sort of a result at the end that I can listen to and know I accomplished what I set out to accomplish. You're working sort of to ensure that I guess you don't see the results of, of or your, your work is to make sure nothing happens. How do you view yourself in sort of today's world with cybersecurity threats? I almost feel like you're in a fort surrounded by zombies and they just keep climbing up the wall and you just keep <laughs> and you keep knocking them down and they keep coming up. What is it about your job that you you enjoy so much? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's the challenge that comes with it. Um, yeah. I think for me, I, I, I just like that it keeps us on our toes. But more importantly, I think I've come to really enjoy the team that I work with, right? Really? My team whether it was when I got hired to do product security before I became the CISO for the company, right? It was just building that corporate product security function that worked across all these divisions and then interacting with the engineers who are actually smart guys who are building product, who are innovating products, right? Some, you know, next-gen products and really just embedding myself and learning from them and then influencing that culture to think about cybersecurity as we develop product, right? So it's the team. It's the thrill of, you know, just the, the fact that you don't know what will happen tomorrow and the sophistication of the attacks that are continuously evolving, right? The threat landscape that's continuously evolving and just problem solving. I think that's a part that I enjoy the most and working with some of the smart guys in, in industry. And then it gets better, right? As you've seen, especially in the medical device industry, there's a lot of collaboration now between the regulators, right, the hospital systems, and now the manufacturers, right, the private public sector collaboration. Then you, you start to see the macro level of, you know, challenges we are trying to address in standardizing security across the industry. So it gets to be more interesting that way. And for me, what makes it even unique for me is the fact that I've been on both sides, right? I was in the healthcare space, in the hospital space, where I actually looked at all these challenges, regardless of the manufacturer, right? It wasn't just the Boston Scientific, it was all other devices from other vendors. And then to be now working for a manufacturer where I understand some of the churn that's happening in the hospital system, the challenges they run into, and the value we as manufacturers can contribute to help that journey, right? So for me, I always have that dual view of the problem, and it makes it even more interesting, especially when you have discussions with engineers who've really just mostly worked in manufacturing and giving them that glimpse of some of the challenges and the brilliance at the same time that we've got in the hospital IT talent and you know biomed talent, for example. So yeah. Help me understand how, how you and when you start working with the engineers in, in new product design. Are you brought in right from the start when you're just beginning to put, I don't even know if pen is put to paper anymore, however these things are designed, but when markers put to whiteboard or whatever's used, are you in those early stages or do they bring you in later on when they realize connectivity is going to play a big role in, in this device's effectiveness? Yeah, so it's a little bit nuanced, right? So think of it this way. Before we build this centralized product security program at Boston Scientific about, you know, six years, a little over six years ago, 
we had each division, you know, and we've got six business units, if you may call them, at Boston Scientific. Each one of them had their own security team members, right, or developers who were security aware developing product. And they followed their product development life cycle, right, from the design, from the concept to the design phase of that. And so what we did when we started to establish this program, our strategy was to standardize a lot of these basic security requirements across the divisions. If you're building anything that has software, anything that has connectivity, what are some of the low-hanging fruits that you can address? Software, you know, you're building you're building software. Well, you should be doing static code analysis. You should consider some of the software bill of materials or the libraries that you're using. How secure are they? Are you using the latest and greatest? Do you have a plan, right? So it was us coming to really just build that into the quality system process, which then requires that as you're building product, the same way you check for you know safety and efficacy is how you also check for security, right? So we introduced that so that it's part and parcel of software development or medical device development. What percentage of devices require your services now? Is it most? Do most have some software element to it that you need to be involved in, or is it still a, a smaller percentage? We're going to take a short break from our conversation to hear from our sponsor, Digi International. Once again, I am speaking with Bob Blumenscheid. Bob is the Senior Product Marketing Manager at Digi International. Bob, tell us, how does Digi International work with medical device companies? Yeah, so we see these companies require the highest levels of quality when selecting components to design into their devices. So we provide that with our Connect course on. They provide the basis of a smart wireless medical device, and they drive wireless connectivity that's secure, along with display support and processing at the edge. We see them going into portable medical devices that require lower power. So we ensure the Connect Core SOMs are built to our customers' required specifications, and we invite our medical device customers to inspect our manufacturing locations as needed. So we can provide the product data needed to certify medical devices and ensure their continued reliability. Connect Core SOMs are available and supported for at least 10 years and typically much longer to support the design and certification times of a medical device, which is typically longer than industrial products. And it's not just hardware that Digi provides, it's software and custom design and support services to augment engineering teams and accelerate device design. That's interesting, Bob. And tell us, Digi International has some new products coming out. Can you give us a little more information about that? Yes, Digi has launched two new Connect Core SOMs at Embedded World in March, 2023. In both cases, we work very closely with semiconductor partners to get chips and software before they're released. So our Connect Core SOMs are available at the same time as the new chips, maximizing the product life cycle of these new SOMs. So with NXP Semiconductor, we launched the Connect Core 93, the first in the new NXP IMX9 family of processors. The Connect Core 3 provides powerful display and processing ca- capabilities and supports the latest Wi-Fi 6 standard. With ST Microelectronics, we launched the Connect Core MP1, a scalable family of SOMs with a compatible footprint for devices either with or without displays. It's the smallest wireless SOM in the market at just 29 millimeters square, so it's ideal for small portable wireless handheld devices with cameras or sensors that measure patient conditions where they can 
measure and transmit directly to patient records for more effective monitoring and diagnosis. And finally, I understand Digi International is offering some new services. Yeah, we launched two powerful services at Embedded World as well. They combine with our ConnectCore SOMs to provide powerful solutions for medical device companies. They include ConnectCore security services, a monitoring service that identifies emerging security threats that affect Linux software our customers use in development. And we also released a cloud service that's tightly coupled with our hardware and enables secure over-the-air software updates to devices already deployed. That's great, Bob. Finally, tell us about the changes that you're seeing in the industry. Yeah, great question. We see a trend of devices becoming smarter, smaller, and more portable, so they can do more outside a clinical setting and help monitor patients once they're released and return home. The biggest change we see is the absolute necessity of creating secure, connected medical devices. Security can no longer be left as an afterthought. Once a device is connected to a hospital network via Wi-Fi, it can be discovered by hackers and used as an entry to hospital system for stealing patient records or mounting a ransomware attack. It's the reason we've included integral security support into ConnectCore SOMs and built our new ConnectCore security and cloud services. We're increasing our efforts to help medical device companies navigate the new global cybersecurity requirements and design and ship secure connected medical devices and keeping them secure as long as they're used. Fantastic. Thank you, Bob Blumenscheid, for joining us on the podcast. And thanks, of course, to Digi International for sponsoring this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. If you'd like more information about Digi International, please go to its website, digi.com. That's D-I-G-I dot com. What percentage of devices require your services now? Is it most? Do most have some software element to it that you need to be involved in? Or is it still a, a smaller percentage? It's still a smaller percentage, Tom, but it, but it also varies. But also, as you can imagine, with the pandemic happening, there's a lot of remote software that's been introduced to help remote support cases, right? Just to help enhance that. So there's a whole digital transformation, how we do, you know, commerce, e-commerce, right? So that landscape is growing, but there's two, two portions to that, Tom. There is a medical devices or software as a medical device versus now the digital software that supports, you know, medical devices or the commercial side of the house. So let's talk a little bit about more of the regulated medical devices, right? So that portion is relatively at Boston Scientific. It's a, a fairly small number compared to many other products that we sell. However, even, even with that small portion, we still focus more on the software itself, the quality and making sure we build it securely. And then, you know, in addition to that, even, you know, what you saw with the FDA now making it a, you know, requirement or making it law, we now have to attest to not just when we are building it, but after we, we finish building the product and it's sitting in the hospital, how we maintain security for that, whether that's through, you know, how we monitor for, you know, our software bill of materials how we put that list together so that the hospitals have it and they can also do the same monitoring or how we do patching, right? You finish the product, we, we have to continue patching those products. So small portion, but we still focus heavily on that as well. It gets more complicated and nuanced, right? Obviously when there's connectivity because there's more attention you need to pay to, pay to it because of the increased attack surface, right? So 
How do you account for a device that is out there in the wild where now there are more devices that the patients will engage with, that they'll draw data from, that they'll draw intelligence from, that'll allow them to better treat their diseases, which is great, but I can't even begin to imagine the vulnerability that creates for a device. How do you maintain that security with those products that are, that are out there and being used? Yeah, that's, that's a special challenge, right? Because yeah. these are not just your small apps for entertainment or social media. These are life-saving and oftentimes software that is helping to maintain the health of a patient. So while we don't have a big portfolio of that, you know, suddenly that is something we, we pay attention to. But to maintain that, what we've done at Boston Scientific is the same concept, right? It's all about transparency. We have these software, especially on connected uh, systems, devices, we have this process called the Coordinated Vulnerability Disclosure, right, where we are monitoring our software, our systems for any new vulnerabilities, doing risk management, in other words, assessing what the probability of being exploited or the impact of exploitation is and whether we have enough controls in place. And then if it rises to a certain threshold, we, we disclose that, right? We disclose that to the patient and it's on our Boston Scientific website so that patients and customers can see that alike and, and track our products and see if there's any security issues that they need to pay attention to. But to your point, it's all about maintenance, right? And that's why you saw the FDA enforcing new requirements, right? It's all about maintenance. We, as the manufacturer who is building those products, right, we continue to monitor for security issues and then report those to the patients and not just report, but also give them guidance on what to do. Do we need to upgrade? Do you need to upgrade that software? Or do you, do you have enough mitigating controls in place so that you don't have to worry about those issues? In other words, they have low threshold in terms of vulnerabilities and exploitability. Fascinating. No, and you're right. It's not a, it's, if someone hacks into my Netflix uh, account, it's not that big of a deal. It's a mere annoyance. But your products are certainly not that. How are the hospitals managing all of this? I've, I've had conversations with people who hospitals are struggling with with many things, staffing, finances, keeping the lights on, keeping things moving forward. Cybersecurity is, is a rising threat for them. How have you been? You've had experience on that side. You have no experience on this side. What's your assessment of their ability to sort of work with you to ensure that, that the products that they're giving to patients have the protections that are necessary? Yeah, it's tough, right? And when you think of hospitals, you've got different sizes of hospitals with different sizes of teams that just focus on security and IT or biomedical device security. And so the way I've seen it is it's evolved. Hospitals are more concerned now. They're asking a lot more questions of manufacturers. So let me give you an example. Back in 2004, there was this form created called the MDS2. It's Manufacturer Disclosure Statement for Medical Device Security. Back in 2004, when they created it, it had 17 questions, right? It had 17 questions that had to do mostly with safety. And then that document, because now cybersecurity was becoming, you know, forefront, in 2013, it got revised. And when it got revised, they revised it and added another bunch of questions up to 65 questions, right? So the MDS-2 was a form basically where every time a hospital is buying a medical device, they will ask the manufacturer to complete that questionnaire, which is really disclosing the security for that device, whether it's you know how they protect the data or how users authenticate to it. But then it gets interesting. Now, we went back and actually I was lucky to be part of the work group that helped to revise it. Back in 2019, we made a revision to it, made it much more broader and to cover more questions. 
it went from 65 questions to 165 questions, right? (laughs) And why were we doing this? It's because of that standardizing, right? It's the way we exchange information with the hospital to help them with their risk management because this device may or may not be sitting on their network or it holds PHI or it has software, right? So this was a way for us to exchange that information. But things really started changing over the last five years where not only was the hospital asking for this MDS2 form, right, with a filled out questionnaire where you're disclosing about that device, but then now they were also asking us additional questions out of that. So we've had questionnaires that we get from hospitals that go in the hundreds, 200s, right? And that's in addition to that MDS2 form. But then it evolved. Now hospitals are setting requirements and then holding manufacturers obligated contractually, right? They're having you sign a contract to say, I'm attesting to the security of that device. And the hospitals are requiring now, most hospitals are requiring the manufacturers to have sort of a shared responsibility when it comes to liability, right? So things have gotten really complicated. But the cool part of that is we've got these organizations that have come forth now, like the Health ISAC, which is an information sharing council made up of manufacturers, industry folks, the hospitals. We come to the table together and we talk about these problems and how we can address it together as a shared responsibility. So there's that dialogue that's happening, but also there's this other churn of, you know, requirements that are being sent from the hospitals to manufacturers to fulfill, you know, or provide more transparency into their products that we are selling to them. Wow. I would have to think that your side of the business, cybersecurity, is as important as sort of the therapeutic design of a device. That a hospital may like a device, but if the cybersecurity of the support isn't there, it's going to make it harder for that hospital to work with that company and that device. Do you feel that you're being assessed just as closely as every other aspect of, of a product now? I would, I would imagine yes. I would say yes, especially yeah. if you're selling product that has software and connectivity. There's yeah. a much, you know, there's a higher, more rigor in terms of what the hospitals will require. So they're asking us for more at that point, right? And what we've seen also is. Obviously, the safety part is important. It's why, you know, the FDA comes into play. But I think when you think of it, the clinicians focus on that and also some some form of IT. But the IT folks who are receiving that medical device, they care about it because it's going to connect to their network. And when you talk of security, it's all about what's in your ecosystem, right? It's that thing that connects to your network, whether it's wireless or it's on, you know, you, you plug it into the wall. And so, you know, IT is very concerned about that. And so that's where that balance between, you know, safety, obviously, and cybersecurity introducing safety issues, right? So, and I think that's how they, you know, the regulators are starting to, are looking at this. It's cybersecurity ultimately could impact safety. And that's why it's critical. It's important. Drew, can we take some time talking about enterprise cybersecurity? And can you talk a bit about what zero trust architecture is? I'm not familiar with it. It sounds ominous, but I'm sure it's a perfectly important uh, philosophy. Yeah, Tom, switching gears now, you know, we've talked about product, we've talked about hospitals, medical device security. Enterprise security is now my focus as a CISO, right? I'm responsible for how we secure our devices, our data here at Boston Scientific, our digital assets, so to speak. 
got a great team of experts in different areas within uh, within enterprise security that are focused in you know different specialties, including the 24 by 7 by 365 security monitoring and response. But you mentioned something interesting about zero trust. So zero trust is an important concept that was coined about 2013, right? And then it became sort of a buzzword because you know people would throw it around when they are trying to define this new strategy for securing you know the network. So it's it's a framework, so to speak. For us at Boston Scientific, the way we view zero trust is it's really saying that, you know, we do not trust anybody who is connecting to our network and we will verify every time continuously. So what does that really mean? So let me give you an analogy, right? So today you're in your office, you're going to go home this evening and uh, you have a special key to, you know, open your main door and get into your house. So imagine this, you walk into your house today. And there are no walls whatsoever. You know, walk, you turn the key, open the door, walk in, but there's no walls whatsoever. You can see the bedroom. You can see the kid's bedroom. You can see your master bedroom. You can even see your office. And in your office, there's a safe. You can see it right from the door. You can see the kitchen, right? Whoever is in the kitchen cooking, what have you, right? So that is sort of an open space right there. So zero trust for us says we will build segments will build up those walls so that when today you go back to your to your house tom it looks the way it does today uh hopefully where you walk in and there's walls that you know separate every room that there's walls and a door that separate the master bedroom from the bedroom from the kitchen from the living room right however when we do zero trust not only do we bring up the walls which is another way of saying we're going to have segments within the network but we will also introduce a concept that every room you're going to have a unique key and only certain people who are allowed into those rooms, right? So Tom, you're going to have your master key to get into the main house. Your kids will have the same, your spouse will have the same, right? So they can all use the same key to get into the main, the main house. But once they get in, now, possibly you and your spouse will only have a key to get into your master bedroom. And you have to turn that key every time you go to your master bedroom. Possibly you and maybe your spouse will have a key to get into your office. And then possibly only you will have a key to get into the safe and only you. And so that's a layered approach to security for both the network where you've got those segments now and those doors, which is what we call the identities, how you would authenticate to your software, right? So you'll have special access to each software and we'll be verifying to make sure that, well, yes, indeed, it's Tom. And he's coming, he's got the right key, he's managed to get into the master bedroom, but then Tom now has a safe, but only Tom has a key. If someone else comes and manages to get into your master bedroom, that's not you, they won't have a key to get into that safe. So that is sort of the analogy that we use, but what, that, what does that really mean in industry terms? So we are looking at four components. We talked about the network, where we're going to have network segmentation for different things. We are a manufacturing company, manufacturing sites will be segmented. Our offices, administrative offices, our labs, all those will have special segmentation, but also we are monitoring continuously every one of those segments with different robustness, depending on the sensitivity of it. At the same time, we have the second piece, which is the identities. Those user identities, the way they access their applications, they will be unique every time. And if someone is logging in today from Minneapolis, right now from Minneapolis, and then five minutes later or 10 minutes later, they're logging in from Marlboro, our headquarters, something is not right about that. And that's the contextual part where we say this identity went from Minneapolis five minutes ago, and now they're showing up in Marlboro. That cannot be that person. We're going to require them to provide additional authentication, right? Finally, we're also looking at the computer they are connecting from. 
that computer has an identity and we know it when, when it hits the network, right? Whether it's coming over VPN or it's actually on site, we know that computer because we've put a certain identity to it, right? The other part of it is the data, very important piece. Only certain people should have certain level of access to all this data, and it varies depending on your role. And so we'll manage all those. So that to us is zero trust. We're looking at those four areas, but also tying it down to an identity and then following that identity, depending on where they're coming from, how they're coming in. And that's how we validate and verify every time. Well, I'm not sure how you do that, how you, how you track all of that. Final question, we kind of joked about at the top, cybersecurity sort of becoming part of everyday conversation and lexicon, part of culture. How do you view cybersecurity's role in, in culture within the company and, and I guess outside of the company? That's a very important piece of cybersecurity. That is a way to scale. You cannot scale security unless you make your entire workforce to be cyber aware, right? So that piece of you know changing the culture and the behavior, cybersecurity behavior is important. But how do we do that? So, right, so we've got programming that is continuous throughout the year here at Boston Scientific. We create, you know, it's typical phishing simulations for testing users so that, you know, we're building that muscle, muscle exercise so users know what to look out for in a malicious email and also just an avenue for them to report. And then we are measuring progress based on the different functions and comparing to say, do we need more training in one area or more communication in you know, a certain area? So we are building that culture and continuing to train, which is, which is across industry. When I talk to my peers, it's the same thing, right? It's fundamental. We have to train our workforce and make it part of the culture that, you know, cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility. And at Boston Scientific, we've had great partnerships with our leaders. We, we have, you know, buy-in all the way to the top. Just last year alone, we went to different town halls for the different business units or divisions where the presidents would invite us to go there and just talk about cybersecurity, right? Would go there and, and, and really share details about what we are seeing in our monitoring, what we are seeing from our threat intel. And it was just fascinating to folks who would write back afterwards saying, I did not know we have that much threats, you know, that are targeted against us. I did not know that, you know, Boston Scientific has this or that capability. So it opens up that dialogue and it sort of demystifies this concept that security is, a, is an IT responsibility, but now it becomes everybody gets to play a role in that. And that's the culture that we're changing. But also you mentioned something around culture, which brings me to talk about what's unique about the cybersecurity team here at Boston Scientific and across the company is DEI. I think we have such a, a fabulous, diverse team within cybersecurity. My leadership is over 50% right now made up of women, right? Which is amazing. In cybersecurity, this was something that, you know, a few years ago, that number was really low, not just here at Boston Scientific, but, you know, across industry. And just to see that, that always makes me feel really proud of the work that Boston Scientific has done in driving intentional DE&I, you know, opportunities across the company. And so we have that and we thrive in it. I think you've heard of women in cybersecurity. I'm normally proud to just talk about that. And we just had a, a few of our directors who are female, the company in, in my team as well, go out and attend a session on, on women, just a conference out uh, last Friday, which was just amazing just to see them posting some of the feedback they were getting and lessons learned. And just, just that, it makes me really proud that we have this inclusive culture, that we have a diverse workforce, and we are continuing to cultivate that because when we are diverse, when we are inclusive, we advance better, right? We advance science for life, which is our mission here at Boston Scientific. 
That's terrific. I would think that having those different perspectives and viewpoints and backgrounds and histories really uh, lend a broader context to the conversation when you're exploring different cyber threats and, and, and approaches. I, I, I imagine certain approaches are targeted toward one person type of person or, or another. In a way, I think I think where you find a lot of uh, value there is when you sit down to remember that problem solving, which is one of the things that really makes me passionate about cybersecurity. It's always this problem you're solving every day and it's challenging, it's, it's shifting. It's getting those diverse perspectives. I may be thinking one thing as a, you know, as a male person who is black, right? I may have a certain, you know, way that I view something and someone who is at the table who is female will also have a certain perspective. And as we start to look at that and compare notes, it shapes the way we solve that problem in a much more complete way, I would say, right? Right. Than if it were just all of us who are, you know, the same race or, you know, all of us who are male, we may just have a certain perspective we are thinking about that we may miss out on some other great critical ideas. Absolutely. Wow. Well, you've got a lot to think about. And I appreciate your uh, your sharing just just some of those insights on on the podcast. Thanks, so thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks to Digi International for sponsoring this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to Drew Bamet for joining us and sharing his story. And thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's great to have you listening to this new podcast series from Device Talks. If you'd like to have future episodes of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast sent directly to you, make sure you subscribe to our Device Talks podcast network. You'll receive future episodes of Boston Scientific Talks and our other great podcasts as well. You can find the Device Talks podcast network on any major podcast application. Finally, please share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you there on LinkedIn. So when you share it, Uh, connect with me and tag me so I can be part of that conversation. But if you're not sharing the podcast, I guess I understand. But still, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect. Well, once again, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. We'll have a new episode coming your way in just a few weeks. 